Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. This is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us today at the intersection of politics, business, policy, culture, and economics. Our topic, super trends in the US-China relationship, which we also explored in a political risk brief of the same name, which you can find at our website, barronpa.com in the library section. I am pleased once again to be joined by my colleagues, Johnny Fluger, our chief strategist, and Jeremy Furchcott, director, who also leads our China practice. Gentlemen, welcome today. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I want to recognize you, Jeremy, uh, not only as the leader of our China practice, but really as the intellect, the driver uh, of our recent political risk brief and our resident expert. I want to compliment your work on China analysis, which I think is truly groundbreaking. And I know Johnny and I are very excited to have this conversation today. We're here to understand what are the great forces that are driving each of these nation states, each of these great powers individually, and how do those trends clash uh, as there is this uh, building great power competition. I want to start, Jeremy, in a slightly different place, however, and pose the following question, which has really, I think, puzzled me, puzzled you, puzzled our firm some, for some years. And we've seen this question arise time and again, which is the following. Despite the U.S. and China having the world's largest bilateral economic relationship, despite China being the most populous nation, and despite extensive contacts between the elites of the two nations now over many decades, there is still a terrible lack of insight and knowledge in the United States regarding China. I'm curious, Jeremy, why do you think that is? I think there are a couple reasons, and it's it's a really important question. First, Westerners tend to view China through certain lenses that are narrow. Westerners tend to visit the same handful of places in China and therefore gain uh, the same types of impressions. So they, they reinforce each other, but they each have often the same narrow windows into China. And so they get impressions of fancy hotels, fancy airports, gleaming high-speed rail, so I think part of it is just a question of who are the American and other Western elites who are peering into China and how they do it. There's another dimension, which is something about China itself. And it could be that China's leadership itself doesn't have a great sense of what's going on in China. There's very little communication internally within China. There is a lot of rumor, a lot of hearsay. And Jeremy, if you had to identify the most common and most serious misunderstanding that Americans have regarding China uh, as a civilization and Beijing as a government, what would you say that misunderstanding would be? One important misunderstanding is that much of what we see coming out of China is a reflection of the Chinese Communist Party, and in particular, certain individual leaders at the top of the Chinese Communist Party. My sense, based, based on close research uh, and, and fantastic work that the team has done, suggests that much of the behavior that we see coming out of China today far predates current leadership, far predates the Chinese Communist Party, and that has important implications for organizations who are trying to uh, ascertain the long-term trajectory of China, U.S.-China relations, and their organization's position in China. Jeremy, when American business leaders in particular engage 
their counterparts in China, meaning Chinese business leaders or the Chinese government, what should they understand that you find and we find in our work is commonly underappreciated? The most important thing that they should understand in engaging Chinese counterparts, partners, competitors, other entities, clients, suppliers, is that much of Chinese activity is driven by internal pressures within China. And those internal pressures are very difficult for people on the outside to understand. They're very difficult for people even on the inside to understand. It's a very opaque system. It's unclear exactly where the lines of trust or distrust lie. It's unclear the dynamics of ambition and fear, who really is trying to do what. And much of the activity that the United States sees coming out of China really is a reflection of those internal dynamics that have been opaque in the past and are probably going to remain fairly opaque in the future. Jeremy, your comments remind me of a conversation I had some years ago with the national security advisor to a foreign government. And this individual remarked to me that in the West, there are two systems, the internal dynamics of which are almost entirely not understood. And one is the royal family of Saudi Arabia, and the other is the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And I think that very much gets to the point you've made today. Johnny, I want to turn to you as our resident expert on American elites, American elite culture, American elite political dynamics, and just uh, get your sense of how American elites tend to understand or as it may be misunderstand China and how perhaps American elites project their aspirations and and their nature onto their Chinese counterparts. Jonathan, I would say that many of the policymakers who have been associated with U.S.-China relations for at least the last 50 years and arguably the last 100 years, either came of age in China or grew up in families of missionaries who had served in China. And I think that there has been a quasi-religious outlook that has been applied to China as a result of this sociology, it manifested itself in the in the granting of China permanent normal trade relations or PNTR 20 years ago. I think that elites perceived that that over time China would realize an almost messianic vision of of prosperity and liberalization. I think that's a probably a secularization of a religious outlook and that's one factor into why we don't seem to understand China very well. Now, we have those missionaries to thank for for a lot of things, including cultural knowledge, uh, knowledge of the Chinese language. But I think when when that impulse became part of the political system, it, it resulted in, in maybe a, a, a fixed view of, of uh, what China was to become. Jeremy, given all of that misunderstanding and all that lack of transparency from the U.S. audience into China, how do you and the team you lead at the firm deal with that problem and try to achieve greater clarity? First, we operate with the understanding that we don't always know what's going on and there could be surprises. Of course, in 2020, there were several major surprises. The pandemic was not the only one. The collapse of luck in Coffee, one of the most exciting companies in China, was for many a major surprise. The last-minute halt of the IPO of Ant Group 
in October 2020 was a major surprise. So first, we operate under the assumption that there can be surprises coming out of China. Second, we try to access underappreciated windows into China. Several of those are historical windows where we identify enduring patterns that are likely to continue in the future. Other windows are contemporaries. We find ways to observe Chinese commercial and government activity in certain parts of the world that have greater transparency than others. We're able to identify certain organizations that seem to be good proxies for other parts of the Chinese system. It's always a work in progress as these windows sometimes open and close, but the windows approach has been broadly successful over the past several years. Jeremy, in the recent political risk brief, super trends in the U.S.-China relationship, we explore and you outline six drivers that you believe are most important in understanding the interaction between the United States and China today. And the bulk of this podcast will be to explore those six super trends. As we begin that conversation and go through each of them, just offer our listeners a sense of the process you use to identify with the team those super trends and provide a little bit of context. The goal here was to try to step back amid such a tumultuous year on the China front to try to identify what is really going to be most important going forward. If one were to follow the China-related news on a day-to-day or week-to-week schedule over the year, one would be overwhelmed with the number of really important stories that have come out of China. And that information overload, at the end of the day, is not particularly helpful. People can only focus on a certain number of things. So the question is, what is really going to be most important in the future? And Jeremy, as we explore these super trends, I think it's important to note that our firm really views the intensifying U.S.-China great power competition, I think we would say, in fact, great power conflict as an enduring challenge unlikely to be resolved in the coming year or two. We view it rather as an enduring challenge. I think this has been something recognized very clearly by U.S. military leaders, including the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General uh, Milley, uh, who commented, I believe, uh, last year uh, on this point. China is the main challenge to the U.S. national security over the next 50 to 100 years. I, I think it's the, uh, I think some historian in, in, in you know, 21, uh, uh, 19 is, is going to look back at this century and write a book, and the central theme of the story is going to be the relationship between the United States and China. General Milley's comment is important because it encapsulates a view that has become almost universal, which is that the U.S.-China relationship is going to be the dominant geopolitical theme over the course of the next several decades, and every major U.S. corporation is going to have to have a plan to succeed and and thrive in that environment. I also want to note that a critical part of our firm's thinking about China has long recognized the strong and growing bipartisan consensus against China that exists within the U.S. political system. We had a very recent example of that when the House of Representatives approved, I think unanimously, uh, a measure that would limit the ability of Chinese companies to list on U.S. stock exchanges uh, that followed Senate action on, on a similar proposal. And so we see, and this this goes back uh, some decades, but I think particularly has intensified in the last four or five years, this tremendous overlap 
between Democrats and Republicans on China policy. They don't always agree, of course, on the precise remedies, but there really is much more overlap on this issue than on many, many others. Joe Biden, like President Trump, uh, has been and is a frequent critic of China, although he's been a little bit more dismissive of China as a threat to U.S. power. He has nonetheless been very critical of China uh, on, on, a, on a range of issues. I spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had by the time we left office. This is a guy who is, has, doesn't have a Democratic with a small d bone in his body. This is a guy who is a thug who, in fact, has a million Uyghurs in reconstruction camps, meaning concentration camps. This is a guy who you see what's happening right now in, in Hong Kong. And Joe Biden's view really echoes the longstanding position of President Trump, who became a China critic decades ago, I think as early as the 1980s, and has always taken a fairly consistent view of the nature of the Chinese regime and how China's economic rise would come and, and does come at the expense of the United States. China's pattern of misconduct is well known. For decades, they've ripped off the United States like no one has ever done before. Hundreds of billions of dollars a year were lost dealing with China, especially over the years during the prior administration. China raided our factories, offshored our jobs, gutted our industries, stole our intellectual property, and violated their commitments under the World Trade Organization. One thing I would note about President Trump's views on China is that they arguably were shaped by his experience operating in the casino industry. One reason his casino business uh, went bust after the Great Recession is that it did not have the backstop, the access to the Macau Gamer that some of his competitors had. And I think he saw in the casino business how um, Chinese market access was becoming central to a uh, global industry. And he took that lesson and has applied it during his presidential term. So let's move into our specific discussion of the six super trends that are driving the US-China relationship. We'll begin with one that I think is not commonly recognized. Uh, many observers have noted the extent to which the United States is increasingly exploring reducing its commitments abroad. But I think there's a similar phenomenon occurring in China, which we call China re-isolates. Jeremy, what are your thoughts on this phenomenon of China also pursuing greater self-sufficiency and autonomy? China has been re-isolating over the past decade or so. At the same time, China has been increasing its foreign investments in many countries, certain initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative, also known as the One Belt, One Road Initiative, have gotten a lot of uh, publicity and uh, have been very significant measures. China has pursued two complementary efforts at the same time. It has increased its ability to gain economic leverage over other countries. At the same time, China has been isolating its domestic market, the core of China, from the outside world. For example, over the past year, China has expelled American journalists affiliated with the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Going further back, China has been increasingly restricting its internet. China has been building up digital firewalls. China has been blocking American companies' ability to access the Chinese market. 
China has been building up new walls between its domestic market and the outside world. Recent events in Hong Kong highlight China's re-isolation. The passage of a new national security law earlier in 2020 has really uh, integrated Hong Kong with mainland China in a way that it hasn't been for over a century. And that is having the effect of pushing foreign business away from Hong Kong and limiting Hong Kong's position as a bridge between the Chinese system and the outside world. Johnny, in thinking about some of the projects we have executed, particularly in the tech sector, advising companies on the challenge of accessing China's market while dealing with the very complicated political questions that access raises in the United States. Describe a little bit for our listeners what American companies uh, have encountered and how that relates to the theme of re-isolation that Jeremy described. Well, if you look back two decades ago, Jonathan, at the peak and and subsequent to the peak of the dot-com bubble here here in the U.S., uh, the U.S. technology industry was ascendant. And that includes the the early internet companies involved in in e-commerce and search and if you go as late as 2006 three of the top 10 websites in china were u.s websites or provided by i should say u.s companies a localized chinese version yahoo google and msn belonging to microsoft within an eight-year period by 2014 there was not a single U.S. website ranked higher than 26th, and 26th was was Google before the departure, the Google's departure from the Chinese market that Jeremy mentioned a moment ago. So, what what occurred is that while Chinese participation in the in the internet in say the 2000 to 2006, 7, 8 period was occurring on American platforms using American technology, leveraging American innovation. Beginning around 2006-7, we began to see the construction of a, of a Chinese internet, an internet with Chinese characteristics, dominated by Chinese companies that effectively had been stood up by Beijing to supplant the American companies that dominated the 1999-2000 to 2006-7 or so period. So what, what companies confronted is an attempt to make life so onerous for them in China that they would leave and be supplanted, be replaced among the, uh, the Chinese consumer by a, a Chinese competitor, whether that's Google and Baidu or you know Amazon and eBay and, and Alibaba. And I, th- I think that that is the dynamic that we saw companies confront, a sense that in order to show return on equity, to show compounding value to their shareholders, they needed to be in the Chinese market, but at the same time, an awareness that it was a Sisyphean, quixotic quest that would end in, in misery. And I think since President Trump came to office, embodying some of the bipartisan populist anti-China trends that you mentioned, Jonathan, companies have been much more open to utilizing tools that the U.S. government, especially the Commerce Department, has to effectively retaliate against you know, the Chinese for anti-competitive, gratuitous measures they've taken against U.S. companies. 
Let's move to our second super trend in the U.S.-China relationship, the race to reshore. Jeremy. China has been pursuing this for over a decade. China and the United States are now both in a race to reshore, but China is ahead. Going back to, for example, the 12th five-year plan, which was issued approximately a decade ago, that 12th five-year plan talked about indigenous innovation. The subsequent five-year plans and, and other policy statements and actions coming out of China have been increasingly forceful the United States has now begun trying to address reshoring, although it is going to be, it is likely to be a slow process in the United States. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic really increased the urgency of reshoring on the U.S. side, but China still remains far ahead. Jeremy, when you say reshore, provide a little more detail. First of all, the most important aspect of reshoring is a mindset. It's a mindset that says that certain assets or types of production or types of companies should be located or at least somehow anchored to, in China's case, to China's mainland and in our case to the United States. That's a mindset that China's had for a long time. For example, in the food sector, for many years, China tried to be self-sufficient in certain grains. The United States, historically in the past few decades, has not really emphasized that, but uh, that mindset is now becoming more prevalent in Washington, D.C. In terms of tangible action, there are several nuances that have been bubbling up in conversations in D.C. over the past year. For example, there are debates about how much the United States should pursue reshoring to the United States versus nearshoring to Canada and Mexico as well, versus possibly ally shoring. So encouraging manufacturing to move out of China to countries like Vietnam or the Philippines or other non-Chinese countries. So there still remains considerable policy debate about the exact parameters and definitions. But what has become an increasingly strong point of agreement is that the United States should be pursuing some kind of policy measure to ensure the security of supply chains and critical goods. I think practically, companies with supply chains that are dependent on China in some way should not anticipate being able to predict exactly when major trade deals occur or fall apart, both between the United States and China, as well as third-party countries, but should be prepared for several years of uncertainty in which the landscape could change uh, at a moment's notice, as it has so often in the past 18 months. Johnny, as U.S. business leaders try to navigate this very dynamic, unpredictable environment, what should business leaders understand as they, in some cases, try to straddle the U.S.-China relationship and deal with the political pressures, the rising anti-China coalition in the U.S., while continuing to pursue market opportunities in China? Is that straddling as possible as it once was, and what are the risks and what are the opportunities? No, that, that straddling is not uh, possible as it once was. The environment has become much more populist and I would say patriotic in its expectations of, of uh, U.S. business leaders. And we see that today as we record this podcast, the Wall Street Journal has a story on Wall Street as the last bastion of support 
you know, strong public support for the bilateral trade relationship in the economy. I think we see those trends accelerate and to the extent that a company needs action in its favor from the U.S. government, I think that company, to be effective, will have to communicate support for U.S. national security interests and uh, U.S. objectives. I think all signs point to companies being caught in a, you're either with us or against us uh, dynamic. So that brings us to our third super trend in the U.S.-China relationship, which is what we call China's uninstall prevention feature. Jeremy, why don't you describe this super trend? This super trend really is a complicating factor in the second super trend, which is the race to reshore. The complicating factor in the race to reshore is that many Chinese companies already have a significant presence in the United States, and U.S. policymakers do not have easy mechanisms to uninstall, so to speak, those Chinese companies. In the past few years, and especially the past year, Huawei has gotten significant attention from U.S. policymakers. Other Chinese companies continue to access either U.S. capital markets or consumer markets or use the United States for uh, R&D purposes. And uh, it remains unclear how U.S. policymakers who seek to engage in the race to reshore, it remains to, it remains unclear how those U.S. policymakers will be able to extricate the U.S. economy from these Chinese companies. One example, if you look at which companies have received permits from the state of California to operate autonomous vehicles on California roads, many of those companies are either Chinese companies or have received significant Chinese investment. That is, in the grand scheme of things, probably not as much of a concern for U.S. policymakers than, for example, WeChat or TikTok, let alone Huawei. But that example of Chinese autonomous vehicle companies in California is a great case study of how Chinese companies continue to operate in the United States and benefit from the tremendous advantages that the United States economy can offer in all sorts of different ways. And Jeremy, to your point, in an interview this summer, Secretary of State Pompeo articulated the threat posed by Chinese businesses uh, active in the U.S. market. These Chinese software companies doing business in the United States, whether it's TikTok or WeChat, uh, there are countless more, uh, as Peter Navarro said, are feeding data directly to the Chinese Communist Party, their national security apparatus. These are true national security issues. One other aspect of Chinese intertwining in the U.S. economy is an obscure multilateral treaty-driven program run by the U.S. Postal Service called ePacket. This program allows merchants and manufacturers in China to ship uh, small consumer goods extremely inexpensively into the United States to U.S. consumers. The shipping fees associated with these parcels, with these transactions, are in many cases lower than the equivalent cost for shipping something domestically within the United States, which obviously is a much shorter distance. And this program is one of the key drivers of proliferation of e-commerce selection in the United States. Whatever e-commerce platform you go on, the availability of inexpensive consumer goods from China 
small ones is driven by ePacket. And that's an example less notable than Jeremy's example of the AV testing in California, where the Chinese manufacturing economy is deeply integrated into the U.S. consumer base. Another important manifestation of this economic intertwining is Chinese companies listing on U.S. stock markets. Despite policy efforts in Washington, D.C. to limit certain Chinese companies' ability to access U.S. capital markets, there have been many significant IPOs of Chinese companies in 2020. For example, in August 2020, the IPO of the Chinese online real estate brokerage, KE Holdings, on the New York Stock Exchange raised over $2 billion, which was remarkable given the timing of that IPO. Jeremy, when you consider this tension between China's insistence on having economic leverage with partners and rivals, especially the United States, and the commitment of the United States to securing greater autonomy and self-reliance. When you look at the next one or two or three years, what sectors do you think will exhibit the most activity, will, will reflect the most tension as those two competing sides maneuver? One possibility could be venture-backed healthcare companies. It might be that in the uh, aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, there will be greater emphasis on the security of the U.S. healthcare sector. So there, there might be greater scrutiny of U.S. healthcare companies that have received funding from Chinese investors. The fourth super trend outlines the idea that while American companies very often are focused on enterprise-to-enterprise competition, the PRC really invests its effort in the framework, in the context, in the rules. And so this theme you've labeled, Jeremy, the competition between China's system engineering versus America's brand equity. What do you mean by that? I know it's something that you've explored in depth. How should our audience understand that concept? American brands have been really successful internationally in all sorts of different areas. Think about Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Apple, Jeep, Levi's jeans. In many different areas of the economy, US companies have amazing brands that are really unparalleled, that are the best brands in the world. China, as much as its economy has grown in the past several decades, China does not have those kinds of consumer-facing brands that the United States has. If you look at the Forbes 2020 list of top global brands, only one out of 100 is Chinese, that is Huawei. More than 50 are American. In a, in a different list, the Fortune Global 500 list, 12% of Chinese companies on the Global 500 list are directly consumer facing versus 37% of US-based companies on that list being consumer facing. So in other words, the most successful, the largest Chinese companies are less likely to be directly consumer facing than American companies. America is really good at consumer brands. China has shown itself to be increasingly good at back-end infrastructure and systems. And Jeremy, why do you think China's companies have had such challenges in building strong brands, especially strong global brands? Is it simply reflect 
the stage of development of China's economy, or is there something more significant, something deeper going on? I don't think that it's a question of stage of development. I think it has to do with the core characteristics of the American system versus the Chinese system. The Chinese system for over a century has been characterized by a lack of trust internally. It's very difficult to build a, a successful consumer brand when the market doesn't exhibit enough trust for people to really gravitate towards certain brands. A brand really is about trust, and America has been a high-trust society for many, many years, really back to the founding and even before. And so U.S. companies have been very successful in investing in quality, investing in craftsmanship, and forging a bond of trust between com between the company and consumers. The role of trust in Chinese society is different, and there's less trust of companies, there's less trust of certain institutions. As a result, it's very difficult for a successful brand-based consumer-facing Chinese company to emerge in the same way. Johnny, to Jeremy's point, recognizing the importance of America's great brands to its economic success and power, are you optimistic or pessimistic about continued U.S. dominance in global brand equity? I'm an optimist. One reason for that is the the development of the of the brand beginning in the late 19th century and really emerging uh, as a force and and ascending uh, in the 20th century has been the development of trademark and intellectual property. And I think the United States remains a world leader in uh, litigiousness and having a political culture driven by the law and lawyers. I do not think that Chinese or, or another you know, near peer competitor that lacks as rich a plaintiff's bar as the US could develop the cultural infrastructure to support brands. And Jeremy, distinct from Johnny's point about the global market, how do you think US brands will fare in China going forward? I think it's going to be challenging because the Chinese government has shown itself willing and eager to punish companies for political reasons. So U.S. brands may face tariffs or other forms of restrictions in the Chinese market. At the same time, I do think there's reason for optimism. I think that many U.S. brands appeal to many Chinese consumers and that connection is likely to be long-lasting. I recall, for example, traveling around Western China, staying in people's homes and seeing uh, posters of American cars on people's walls in remote areas of Xinjiang. In other parts of China, I've seen a lot of interest in the Jeep brand and in off-roading culture that appeals to people's desire for freedom and individual mobility. So I think in the long term, brands continue to will continue to have a lot of appeal, but the Chinese government could be a complicating factor. Moving to our fifth super trend in the U.S.-China relationship is the idea or the way that China thinks about its relationships with its neighbors and with its global adversaries, in particular the United States. I think uh, despite the U.S. experience with long-term activity in Afghanistan or Iraq or going back to Vietnam, Americans culturally 
think of conflict of, as having you know distinct phases and occurring and then ending with a clear with some kind of clear resolution. And when that doesn't happen, uh, the American public tends to move away from support for engagement for some kind of foreign entanglement. I think the Chinese, based on your work, Jeremy, have a very different view. This idea of conflict management, not resolution. What do you mean by that? In China, many conflicts are not solved, and there doesn't really seem to be a lot of interest in trying to solve the the problem or the conflict. Instead, the approach seems to be just to maintain the conflict and to just continue to manage it. For example, China's conflict with India, which in the summer of 2020 erupted into some of the worst violence in several decades. That's a long-standing dispute that goes back many decades, over uh, over 60 years. And based on what's happened this year, there is there is no real prospect for uh, that border conflict being solved anytime in the in the near future. Similarly, on China's eastern flank, Japan and China continue to have disputes about the Senkaku Islands, which China calls the Diaoyu Islands. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe stated that China has a, quote, deeply ingrained instinct to pursue territorial disputes. So there seems to be perception among certain neighbors of China and probably many neighbors of China that China's belligerent activities, that China's conflicts will not be resolved and that the world needs to live with these conflicts just as China is going to continue to live in them. And Johnny, how do you think about this very strange contrast between the powerful populist trends in American politics, which are fueling the rise of anti-China sentiment, at the same time that very pragmatic American business executives are trying to navigate the realities of striking deals, uh, striking relationships uh, with both the Chinese government as well as Chinese business counterparts, How do you see that playing out during a Biden administration? As a result of greater Republican populism, we are likely to see even more uh, political isolation experienced by corporate America. This is a theme that that we have um, explored in, in in some depth. I think that one of the inputs into the emergence of, of populism as a as a critical political force in our society has been the iconic images it can point to in terms of the deterioration of U.S. well-being as a result of permanent normal trade relations with China and other measures that were supported by by business elites in the country. Populists can point to the iconic steel mill that was shut down. They can point to the car plant that built machinery critical to winning World War II and say, look what our current generation of business elites have created. Their policy preferences, their advocacy have led to these terrible outcomes that have resulted in reduced well-being for our population. I think that to reverse the direction business leaders will have to develop and point to their own iconic images of of industries, of people, of stories of of well-being enhanced by uh, collaboration with overseas trading partners. Absent business leaders developing their own stories that show the 
predicament they're in and and the uh the benefits perhaps that some of their deals have have brought into being i think we're going to see more of the same this brings us to our sixth and final super trend in the u.s china relationship which is what we call cracks in the great wall i'll just introduce this super trend by saying it's very common among uh, american leaders especially i would say business leaders academic leaders to portray china as this seamless glowing shining perfect society where every airport is new every train is fast every street is clean every project is completed on time and with great efficiency and again we imagine china to be this especially formidable competitor where the society has very few divisions and it is uniquely focused on progress economic growth and and uh, great achievement and i think uh, in our work uh, led by you jeremy the reality uh, is quite different. Not to say that China is not a formidable competitor, it is, but I think the picture is very different than imagined uh, by m- many Americans, especially um, in political, academic, and business circles. Uh, Jeremy, what, what are your thoughts on this on this super trend? Western observers portray China as a monolith. China is akin to a cellular society. What does that mean? There are many different cells which make up the entirety of China. Historically, those cells were geographic. So each town was essentially self-sufficient. Transportation was very rudimentary within China. And so geographically, there was a cellular fabric to the country. People didn't travel very much. If you read the accounts of people traveled around China in the early 1900s, late 1800s, they describe meeting people who have never traveled five miles outside of where they were born, that was the structure of much of China. There was a lot of internal distrust in China, which amplified that cellular structure to society. That aspect of China is still there today. If you look at China's response to COVID-19, China basically shut down large parts of the country. People could not travel. In certain cases, people were locked up in their apartments. Um, There's an aspect of China which is able to compartmentalize internally in a way that the United States just is not structured. What that means is that in China, there are different pockets of people who have their own views, their own experiences, which may be very different from some other pocket of people in China. And that actually makes it very difficult for the country's leadership because they have to, in their view, they need to understand what all these different groups believe. So China is diverse internally, and this creates blind spots for any observer of China, certainly any outside observer of China, and probably many internal observers within China as well. And Jeremy, I think your point is that the nature of the diversity within China is different than the regional diversity and cultural diversity that exists in the United States. Of course, the United States is an enormous country with all kinds of different areas and segments and populations. But but I think the point you're making is China has a different quality to its diversity. Would just speak to that distinction for a moment. In the United States, transportation has always been hardwired into American identity. The American people was mobile. People were Uh, moving westward across the country, there was a sense that people could not only economically change their prospects, but geographically change their location. And that was part of of the American idea. In China, from the government's point of view, historically, 
transportation meant that potential challengers would be able to raise rival armies. And so governments would deliberately try to constrain transportation to try to prevent people from moving around. So what that means is that the uh, American regionalism is less, in a way, is, is very powerful. You see it of course, in American politics and, and, and society and culture, but there is a certain fluidity between regions, and there is a sense that all Americans have something very deep in common, which is different from how I think many people in China perceive their national identity. So as we enter the final part of our conversation today, I want to explore the implications of these super trends taken together. What do they mean for American policy? What do they mean for American business? What should leaders expect in the coming months and years? I'll say that I do think that we see this growing divide between the American people's recognition of the benefits, or more importantly, the costs of the US-China relationship that reigned from the late 1990s until recently, relative to how elites view the relationship and its mainly benefits. And I think that 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 tension, that conflict has been and will continue to be a major driver of American political activity. I want to get your impressions, Jeremy uh, and Johnny, of that issue, of that tension and other implications of the super trends we've discussed today. I think that the tension that you described, Jonathan, should be one of the guiding principles for policymakers and business leaders seeking to navigate the U.S.-China relationship. But it will be important to... um, to be able to discern the day-to-day news, which is always important, but in the past year has been particularly dramatic coming out of China. So I think a challenge for U.S. policymakers and and for business leaders will be to um, maintain a a long-term approach over the next several years, which will be um, which will be resilient to some of the ups and downs in the relationship that are likely to occur. Jeremy, I think we should highlight one of the key lessons from our experience on China-related projects, which is the following. Often it takes a long time for government policy to catch up to domestic politics. And we have entered this phase of American domestic politics where there is this not just uh, formed but intensifying anti-China consensus, but yet – the American government, American policymakers, still have a regulatory and a policy regime that expects American companies to compete globally, and there's an expectation that American companies are going to be in China. And until the policy framework catches up with the politics and actually provides companies with a clear set of rules of how to transition from the old U.S.-China relationship to this new relationship, which is going to be much more driven by competition and, in fact, conflict, there's going to be this gray zone where companies have the expectation both of being successful in China, but also contributing positively to U.S. national security and its concerns about China's aggression uh, and intervention abroad. And it's going to be some years before there's clarity in how companies can navigate the new reality. And I think that makes the coming years particularly hazardous. I certainly agree, Jonathan. One way for corporate executives to think about how they would like to operate in this gray zone is to think about what type of policy and politics are likely to be in place in D.C., let's say four years from now. So let's say in 2025, 
what are the policies going to be? And importantly, if policymakers are going to be looking at what companies have done in the previous five years, in other words, from 2020 through 2025, how is that going to look? It'll be important for U.S. executives to try to foresee where the letter of the law is likely to move in the next few years to avoid potential negative outcomes uh, in the next several years. Johnny, to Jeremy's really important point, and you've noted this in many of our conversations, political rules can exist long before they exist in the Federal Register. And so when you think about American companies, uh, business leaders, what should they understand about the rules that exist today, but the rules that have not yet been written when it comes to China? We likely are going to see American companies spending a lot more time securing their supply chains, given government concerns over products like semiconductors. At the same time, we're likely to see an accelerating trend of export control enforcement. So so both products being made in China that get used in goods in the United States, as well as goods that are made in the United States or where the R&D is done in the United States being exported to China. I think we're going to see an acceleration of scrutiny uh, of, of both directions of, of transactions. And that has appeared to date uh, in the Federal Register, to use your metaphor, Jonathan, but I think it's going to appear uh, even more frequently in the months and years ahead. Well, thank you, Jeremy, uh, for your outstanding work uh, on this topic and leading our China practice. I want to thank Johnny Fluger for your terrific contributions and your insights on political strategy. As always, a great appreciation to Diana Engelman for making these podcasts possible. I want to thank our terrific producer, Noah, for his great work, and of course, Danielle Weinrich on our team for the research that informs our discussion. I also do want to uh, say thank you to Suzette for uh, just her great contributions to the background that we uh, we had for, for today's discussion. Uh, if you would like to learn a little more, I do want to highlight our website, baronpa.com and the library section, where you can read the political risk brief, super trends in the US-China relationship. Of course, you can also follow us on LinkedIn at our company page if you search within LinkedIn for Barron Public Affairs. Thank you all for joining us today, and we hope you'll join us for a future episode of the Political Risk Brief. 